Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant, the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the, Almighty, to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. Godly, no, hang on. They are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Uh, 17-year-old David Idale uh, and two mates from Sydney Grammar School had gone on a three-day walk, uh, bushwalk in the Blue Mountains. On the second day, they'd already run out of water in the 37 degree heat uh, because the drought conditions had, had dried up all the creeks where they expected to, to be able to replenish their water bottles. As they made their way down the, the rugged valley towards the Kadumba River, David became separated from his two mates. The others made it to the river, but David became lost. Uh, at midday on the following day, having had no water now for 18 hours uh, and already showing signs of serious dehydration, uh, David made the first of five frantic calls to Triple O using his mobile. On the first call, uh, even after David had explained that he was completely lost, the operator asked him four times to tell her where he was. And what was the nearest cross street before the call cut out? The second call, five minutes later, lasted only 10 seconds because of really poor reception where David was. One minute later, uh, the third call came in and was picked up by the same operator who took the first call. Surely she would have recognised David's voice and his circumstances. I'm lost. I need water. I haven't had water for a long period of time, he says. But she keeps on asking him for a street name until the line cuts out. On his fourth attempt, two minutes later, David gets a different operator. He has to try and describe his situation all over again. But the outcome is no better than and the line cuts out. Now, clearly he's becoming weak now and disoriented. The final call is the most tragic. It came 13 minutes later. After telling the operator that he was lost in the bush near the Kadumba River, he was put on hold then for 28 seconds. Then the operator asked him again where he was and put him on hold for a further 24 seconds. 
The operator asked David four times where he was and criticised him for being vague before David is heard breathing heavily and the line drops out for the last time. If you read the transcripts of the calls like I have, uh, they were published at the time of the inquest, it becomes very obvious that the operators are talking but they're not listening. After five desperate calls, no one had even asked his name. And at the inquest into his death, the operator who took his final call said that she had something else on her mind at the time and didn't realise David was lost. She'd previously been disciplined for reading novels while taking triple O emergency calls. Now, the reason I've told this story this morning is, is not because uh, God is, is like triple O, you know, the, the emergency number that we call or something. There's, there's no connection there at all. It's because the operators who took David's call remind me of the people of Israel at the time of Malachi and quite possibly of you and me at times, maybe even now. Remember before morning tea we saw how God's people were taking him for granted. Well, there's another way that they were taking him for granted. They're talking to God, but they're not listening to him. There's a breakdown of communication between the people and God, but the people can't quite figure out why they aren't getting the answers that they want. Because they're not engaging with God. For some reason they haven't figured out yet, God seems distant, unresponsive. In verse 13 we're told that they cry out to God, but he no longer pays attention to their offerings or accepts them with pleasure from their hands. The people are losing touch with God. Already the prophet has accused the people of taking God's love for granted. Already we've seen that the church, the church leaders, are to take some of the blame for, for much of the, the low spiritual state of the church. How the people showed contempt for God by bringing the blind and the lame and, and their diseased animals as sacrificial offerings. And we ask ourselves, am, am I serving God with my whole life in a way that truly honours him? And now Malachi puts his finger on some of the causes of this breakdown in relationship between God and his people. It's evident that God is withholding his blessing. You see, sometimes God delays answering our prayers because he wants us to learn patience and perseverance uh, or to test our trust in him. Luke 18, for example, teaches that in the parable of the persistent widow. But other times, God is using hardship to train us in holiness. This was Paul's experience um, as he reflects in 2 Corinthians. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 teaches us the same truth. The writer to the Hebrews concludes in Hebrews 12:11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. But here God is holding back because his people are taking him for granted. How are they doing that? Well, let's pick up the text at Malachi chapter 2 and verse 10. Have we not all one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Now, even though the NIV Bible um, has the capital F for father, there's no capital F in the original Hebrew text. And the father that Malachi 
is referring to here is almost certainly Abraham. Father Abraham, not God. He's talking about the fact that Israel is one big spiritual family that God created when he established Abraham as the father of a new nation, a new redeemed community that would be known as the people of God. And they were bound together not just by blood relationships, but also by a covenant or a binding agreement that God had made with them. It was a covenant of grace in which God bound himself to protect and, and prosper these people if they would trust him and submit to his rule. And God's covenant stipulated how he expected his people to treat each other. This is how they were to honour him. They were to love and care for each other and so treat each other with complete faithfulness. But they're not, says Malachi. He says they're profaning God's covenant by breaking faith with one another. Uh, the idea in the Hebrew is that of disregarding promises and, and agreements. And I wonder if you realise how much God cares about your relationships with each other here in, in your church family. Church is not just a, a convenient location for Christians to gather once a week for public worship. Church is a community of transformed people who are called to imitate the Lord Jesus by loving each other. Church is the place where God expects us to show the world, the watching world, what happens when people submit to the rule of Jesus. This is where God's glory is meant to be on display to the world at large. And in principle, the same was true for Israel before the coming of Jesus. Uh, it was the church, the gathering of God's people. But in Israel at the time of Malachi, God is angry and his people are losing touch with him. And Malachi says it's because they're profaning the covenant God made with them by the shameful way that they are treating each other. And it's instructive to note that the three examples that Malachi now provides are all to do with marriage. In verses 11 and 12, he says that Israelite men have been unfaithful to God and are endangering the safety of the whole community by marrying women who are unbelievers. Typically, this was how idolatry entered the whole community. Look at verse 11. Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. When it came to marriage... God said that the Israelites were not to marry people of another religion, that is, who, who worship a false god. Uh, the daughter of a foreign god here, in verse 11, is simply a woman who is attached to or, or worships a false god. Now, this wasn't a racial thing. This wasn't a, a, about racial discrimination. Israelites were permitted to marry a person of another race, so long as that person was trusting in God. Uh, the marriage of Boaz as an Israelite to Ruth, the Moabites, was greatly blessed by God because Ruth was a believer. 
that this was a spiritual issue, not a racial one. You see, what usually happened when, say, a man married a woman who was steeped in another religion was that she then brought the, the images of her gods and her whole worldview into the marriage and into the family home. This inevitably, of course, affected the man and, and their children, but it also affected the whole community of God's people. It, it compromised uh, their relationship with God. If you look back into the history of Israel, you can see how this practice spread and led to whole communities uh, practicing idolatry. This was the reason why Israel had been taken away into slavery and exile in Babylon 130 years or so earlier. And so surely the men who were doing this now were putting the whole community at risk all over again. Now the parallel to this in our time, of course, is that the New Testament teaches that a Christian should only marry a fellow believer. Someone who shares their desire to follow Jesus, who puts Jesus first in every aspect of their marriage and their life together. The nature of marriage as it's set out, for example, in Ephesians 5, uh, and the nature of the, a Christian's relationship to Jesus require that. And a Christian only marry another Christian. And in passages like 1 Corinthians 7 and uh, verse 39, Paul is quite explicit about it. Um, there he's discussing the situation of a Christian woman whose husband has died. What should she do? Should she marry again? Well, of course. But, and he says, a woman who is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. For a Christian to knowingly marry a non-believer is to invite trouble, to invite heartache and potentially compromise their own relationship with God. And it will also affect their children and it will affect the church to which he or she, the Christian um, partner, belongs. And so the, here is something important for anyone who's contemplating marriage in the future. Only marry a man or woman who is following Jesus. What if a Christian is already married to a non-Christian? Well, we, we don't sit in judgment as a church family. But as a church family, we do all that we can to love and support that person and to pray and, and to work with them for the salvation of the unbelieving spouse. You see, the underlying problem exposed by Malachi is that God's people are being unfaithful to each other in the church. He's not just talking about you know, those who are joined to unbelievers. He's talking about the general problem of unfaithfulness. What about failing to care for and comfort those in the church family who are in trouble or who are suffering? That's unfaithfulness. Uh, what about show, failing to show hospitality to each other? What about those who always leave it to others to serve in the ministries of the church when they could be serving? We break faith with each other when there is a culture of criticism in the church, when we're not prepared to risk our own comfort for the sake of gospel ministry. 
All of these sorts of things and many more tend to make the church weaker and in a way that we don't always appreciate, God's blessing is withheld. And this is because in the church family, you and I are often the agent of God's blessing. Not just the recipients of God's blessing, but we bring God's blessing to each other by our faithfulness to each other. And at the same time, we honour God by our faithfulness. I want to skip down to verse 16 now and then come back to verses 13 to 15. There's a method in that madness. Uh, in verse 16, Malachi gives the third example of how God's people were breaking faith with each other. And again, it's to do with marriage, or in this case, the breaking of a marriage. Now look at, at verse 16. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering self with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord God Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. God hates divorce because he has designed marriage to be a lifelong bond of companionship where the faithfulness of a husband and wife to each other in good times and bad, in sickness and in health, you know the vows, is a reflection of the love between Jesus and his church. And the implication from verse 15 that we'll come back to in a minute is that God also hates the damaging effect that divorce has on children. I know that I'm seeing more and more spiritual and emotional problems in adults that can be traced back to the divorce of their parents. And because in Malachi's day only men could initiate divorce, a woman had no right to initiate a divorce, God hated it because it was often a man's way, issuing his wife with a certificate of divorce, of simply discarding his wife and moving on to another woman that he'd taken a fancy to. And of course, in Israel, she would be another woman in the church. Another Israelite, unless he was marrying a woman um, joined to a foreign god. The expression there about a man covering himself with violence is a, a Hebrew figurative expression for a man acting with injustice. In this case, towards his wife. God provides for divorce because of our sinfulness and because sometimes divorce is better than the sinful misery that some people can inflict on each other when they are locked together in a hateful marriage. But God wishes it didn't have to exist. Again, when divorce has occurred, God is still gracious. And Christians, through repentance and forgiveness, can rebuild their lives. But Malachi here is calling for prevention. God doesn't want it to get to that point. For guarding our marriages so that there'll be no breakdown of marriage. Now the issues of uh, Christians only marrying in the Lord uh, and remaining faithful in marriage are really important. Um, but there is one that really captures my attention and, and uh, the, the example that rather that Malachi gives uh, really catches my attention in verses 13 to 15 that we'll come back to now. So look with me at verse 13. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altars, altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? 
Uh, you see, it's possible to feel the growing distance between yourself and God and yet fail to recognise the cause, or at least to admit it to yourself. You're in denial. To feel that you can no longer see the blessing of God on your life and see growing conflict and tension in your family, in your family life, but fail to see the connection between sin and the fracturing of relationships. And so God addresses the issue that in this case, and I suspect often in our situations as well, needs to be corrected. The men are failing to be godly husbands. I think it's likely that some of the women were failing to be godly wives as well because women are just as prone to sin as men. But God addresses the men of Judah in this passage because men, our marriages are first of all our responsibility. Not our wives, ours. If you study Ephesians 5, for example, husbands are to take the initiative in loving their wives, just as Jesus took the initiative and gave himself for his bride, the church. You see, because of the way that God has made us, if a man truly loves his wife in a genuine and sacrificial way, then she'll respond to that love and love him in return. And so Malachi goes on to say, the Lord is acting as a witness between you the man of Judah, and the wife of your youth, because you've broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. The Lord is a witness. Uh, perhaps other people can't see what's happening, can't see the conflict, might be just a, a verbal issue, um, a separation that's, that's coming, even though you're living in the one house. But God sees everything. He knows the truth about our marriages. And to the men of Judah who are failing in this, he says, you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Notice that God describes marriage in verse 14 as a covenant. Uh, a, a covenant in biblical terms, of course, is a binding agreement which includes promises and obligations that each partner uh, party to the covenant declare in public will form the basis of their relationship in the case of marriage at least the kind of marriage God wants there is a, a public commitment to sacrificial love and what is offending God is that men are failing to keep the promises that they made at marriage to lovingly serve their wives uh, men and women are very different we rejoice in that difference God has made us different for a reason. And the main reason is that in marriage, a husband and wife might lovingly complement each other. In marriage, their strengths and weaknesses are pooled together so that one supplies what the other lacks and, and their needs are met by each other. Now, they're united as, as partners in the great enterprise of life in such a way that their oneness that is referred to here in, in Malachi and, and, of course, re referred to in Genesis, uh, established by God's design, is, is far stronger and richer and more wonderful than would be possible for either of them if they were alone. So, in short, marriage is a covenant in which husband and wife promise to lovingly serve each other and to make the other complete. 
But here Malachi points out something about marriage that is often overlooked. Look at Malachi 2 and verse 15. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. You see, Malachi is saying that a God-honouring marriage and the family life that flows from that God-honouring marriage is one of the primary means by which God is building his kingdom. God is gathering his people from the children of believing parents. That's not the only way that the kingdom of the Lord Jesus is growing, which is why we evangelise the whole community. As the gospel has told, people who have no Christian family background at all are being saved. We're seeing that at Charlestown. I trust you're seeing it at Port Macquarie. But as we read God's word, we find that God has made a covenant with believing parents that he will not only be their God, but also the God of their children and their grandchildren. Their children's children. We first find this covenant made with Abraham, uh, who the Apostle Paul describes in Romans 4 as, as our father in the faith, in the sense that what was true for Abraham is true for us. And God said to Abraham in Genesis 17 verse 7, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. It's an amazing promise. Do we believe it? And so we would not make the mistake of thinking, oh, well, you know, that was a promise made back in the Old Testament that really only applied within Israel. It's talking about, you know, this belonging to Israel, isn't it? No, Paul writes in Romans 4 and verse 16, therefore, the promise, referring back to the covenant, comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Paul is saying that God's covenant promise to parents that he will be the God of their children applies to us. It applies to you. And what our passage in Malachi is teaching us is that one of the chief ways in which this promise of God is fulfilled and faith in Jesus is cultivated amongst our children is through a godly family life that has a godly marriage as its foundation. See it again in verse 15. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. A Christian man and woman enter into a marriage covenant with each other and over above all of the other reasons why they make uh, this lifelong commitment, God reveals that his divine plan is that this marriage might result in godly, that is, God-worshipping children. Now, of course, in our fallen world in which the whole created order has been twisted and corrupted by sin, the ability to have children is not universal. And so faithful Christian couples find themselves suffering the anguish of infertility. But the point that that verse 
so it's not a we're not to take this as a promise that every Christian couple will have children. The point that verse 15 of Malachi 2 is seeking to make is that God designed Christian or biblical marriage with the intention of bringing godly offspring into the world. That is, children who come to trust in Jesus as their Lord and who by faith are made right with God. It's a powerful truth. It impresses on us how important our marriage is and our family life in God's plan is to bring our children into his kingdom. It explains a key aspect of God's promise to be our God and the God of our children and our children's children. And it shows that the saving of our children and grandchildren is not automatic. They don't become Christians just because they have a Christian parent or parents. Rather, it's contingent. It does matter what we as parents and grandparents do and say. It does matter what our marriage is like. A godly marriage between their parents is one of God's powerful means of bringing children to faith in Jesus. That's what this is teaching us. Well, what then if I mess up in my marriage? Does that mean that my children won't become Christians? Not necessarily. Because God is a God of grace. God works on the basis of grace. And he uses even our imperfect lives to accomplish his purposes. But that's not an out. We need to take the clear meaning of this passage seriously. God uses various means to save the children of Christian parents, including the preaching of the gospel and prayer. But here God is making it very plain that the oneness that children see in a Christian marriage has a profound influence on their view of the gospel and their response to it in God's providence. So once again, we're asked by Malachi to examine ourselves. So guard yourself in your spirit, he says, and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. We're called to guard the oneness that God has established. What does it look like? Well, probably the best summary, is, I think, is provided for us by Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, a passage you probably know really well. And what is remarkable in that passage is that it tells us that the love that a husband is to have for his wife uh, is to be modelled on the love that the Lord Jesus has for his wife, his bride, the church. Uh, Paul writes in Ephesians 5:25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What did Jesus do? He humbled himself and set aside his own glory and he gave himself fully and sacrificially even to death on a cross that we might benefit. And so in summary, the oneness that God intends in a Christian marriage is one that is forged in sacrificial love. It's a relationship that simply oozes grace. Uh, I spent a lot of time with my Christian grandparents when I was a boy. Um, they lived at Menai. When Menai, I don't know if you know Sydney, Menai was in the south. It was just all bush, rugged bush. Um, I had to catch the, uh, a ferry, a, a car ferry across, and walk up through the bush to my grandparents' place. And I would stay there often in the school holidays. Now I didn't see perfect people in my grandparents. But I, I saw a married couple who forgave each other when they stuffed things up. 
who treated each other with gentleness and kindness when they least deserved it, who sought each other's happiness, who put the benefit of the other before their own, who lovingly met each other's needs. I'm pretty certain that none of us lives up to God's standard set out in Ephesians 5, but with God's help, that's to be our goal. You know where things stand in your marriage. If you're not married, you know the sort of example or, or model that you're presenting to the other children and people in the church family. At every point, we must believe God's promises and rely on his grace. And that is what God is calling us to do from the words of Malachi. God is speaking. Are we listening? Are you engaging with God? Some of you might be thinking, well, yes, I am listening, but, but I, I know that I can't measure up to what God is asking of me. Or well, I don't know how I can. Well, God isn't asking you to be faithful in your own strength but to rely on Jesus. And knowing that, before he even got to the stuff about marriage in chapter 5, when he was writing the, the letter of Ephesians, Paul wrote in verse three of, of, uh, uh, chapter 3 of, uh, and verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, what does faith lead to? Obedience. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're so faithful in speaking to us. Uh, you've revealed yourself to us. You've revealed all that we need to know about how we should respond to you, how we might be your children, how we, we might be your faithful people. And yet there are times when we're just not listening and uh, we wonder why things aren't going right. Please help us to see the importance of being faithful to each other uh, starting in our homes and extending out into our whole church family. Help us to be mindful of each other. Help us to love and care for each other in a way that uh, really reflects your faithfulness to us. And in our marriages, for those of us who are married, um, help us as husbands and wives to love each other with a sacrificial love, to act towards each other in a way that, that imitates the way that you have acted towards us in humility and grace, with forgiveness and restoration. And for those of us who are not married, who might one day be married, help us to be faithful to you in determining now that we will only marry a believer and realise why that is so important. For those of us who probably will never be uh, married or married again, uh, help us to be faithful in our situation in life and towards the whole church family in that. Help us to listen to you in a way that leads to obedience.
In Jesus' name, amen.